So it has been a big two weeks for our president. You have Ramaphosa, the deal maker, and Ramaphosa, the uh, wannabe peacemaker. We're going to look at uh, the two faces of the president. We'll also talk about a quiet revolution that is sweeping through KwaZulu-Natal traditional leadership. What is the electricity minister doing in China? And feel for people in the Western Cape, and we're not talking about people who live in Constantia or in Rondebosch. We're talking about the vast majority of Capetonians as cold and bitter weather prevails. So there's quite a bit to get through today. Welcome to our weekly ScrollerCast. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and uh, with me, when he gets off his phone, is our political editor, <laughs> Zukili Majova. And we hope uh, it is another 20 minutes of uh, conversation about uh, the state that we are in. So, Zukili, let's uh, start with the president, if we can. And you wrote an interesting piece this week saying that organized business in South Africa has hailed this peace mission to Ukraine and Russia. I think it's common cause that the war is already hurting South African economies. But the tragedy of this whole thing, whether it's successful or not, it was eclipsed by the diplomatic, bureaucratic and security bungle on the runway of the airport in Poland. And sadly, that's what the focus has been on. Yeah, but correctly so. I mean, if you are, if you are going to lock uh, journalists in a plane for 24 hours, I mean, what else do you expect? You know, I can understand keeping the South African forces and uh, the president's security and all of that, but for journalists to be um, to endure such, it's just unacceptable. Because totally. we couldn't get the paperwork right. Totally unacceptable. But the journalists are not involved in, the, in getting Precisely, the paperwork right. Precisely, they were caught up in the maelstrom, but the reality is it's, it's an indictment against our organizational inability because we simply just, we took what photostat documents with us. <laughs> it was absurd. It's I mean, madness. Get this I right. mean, trying to justify going into a foreign country, carrying guns with photocopy permits. I mean, that that's just not on. And, and 12... I hope in South Africa we do not allow people coming here carrying uh, photocopies. Can you imagine if the boot was on the other foot and, you know, an aeroplane from Poland tried to arrive doing that? You know, they'd be shown the door very, very quickly. Exactly. And 12 crates of ammunition? Come on, for what? If it was ammunition, we still don't know what was in those crates. This whole thing is madness. This, I mean, this is total madness. But they were saying they were saying that uh, when Putin comes to South Africa, if he does come, he's going to be travelling with around three thousand soldiers. So it's it's, That's it's an just army. It was a, a chapter of disasters, and it was farcical in the extreme. Having said that, though, and I think much has been written and spoken about uh, as far as that part of the story is concerned, but. You've written a piece this week saying, organized business here, saying, well, maybe there's a chance that something will come of this. Who have you been talking to and what have they told you? Well, the South African uh, Chamber of uh, Commerce and Industry, well, they, they're quite sober about it. They're looking at the side of business. There are a few successes. Prisoner exchanges are already happening last week and this week. There, there are some prisoner exchanges that have been happening. NY Times was carrying uh, yeah. interviews with some of the prisoners. Uh, they, obviously, 
the international community can get to Ukraine and monitor the situation of, of, of prisoners of war, but they can't get to Russia. So the ones in Russia, uh, the ones who were in Russia are talking about the ill treatment that is happening there while the Russian soldiers in Ukraine are kept in reasonably human, humane conditions. So that, that was one of the conditions. Obviously for Africa, we want trade, we want grain and we want fertilizers. The, the, rains, the rains are here in parts of Africa. They're going to be here very soon as well. We want agriculture to get going, and that thing is hurting uh, us as far as that is concerned. One of the other things that they're quite impressed about was the fact that the president was quite clear with, with, with Putin to say the children of, of Ukraine must be, must, must be sent back home. And, and, and that's the main issue that the International Criminal Court is talking about. He's been charged for all crime, for deportation of children of Ukraine. What is really critical, and you make the point uh, very eloquently in this piece that you wrote, uh, quoting the African Development Bank, this conflict already has triggered a shortage of 30 million tons of grain on the African continent. The upshot of that is it has a... Uh, a direct impact on cost, um, and again, it's the uh, it's 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 the the poor on this continent yeah. that are paying the price. It's a travesty and a tragedy. Absolutely, uh, and we will be at the receiving end. It will be the cost of everything: the cost of labor, the cost of food for those who already cannot afford it. You know, so if if they can open the trade channels through the Black Sea, for us as Africans, we'd be quite happy with that. Obviously, we want the discalation of this war. No one thinks the war is going to end overnight, but as as President Ramaphosa learned, while they were there landing in Ukraine, the bombs were flying in. On, on, on the day when, the weekend, that it's known that at least there's going to be some discussion around peace, and Russia was not cooperating. So let's circle back then to Cyril Ramaphosa himself. Uh, he's come back and he says that the mission was partly successful. He's presented this 10-point plan, which looks very vague to me. There's very little flesh on the flesh on the bones as far as that is concerned. But will he will he take some kudos out of this? Will will he look at this as a as a as a as a good move for himself? Was it an accomplishment? I think, Jeremy, it takes a long time for things to happen in Africa. I mean, there have been wars around the globe. This is the first time you have Africa asserting some kind of African position on a war as big as this one. And actually having African leaders going to both countries. You know, many leaders have gone to one country. Even China went only to Russia, etc. So to an extent, uh, I don't think it's going to be an overnight success. But this is, this is quite a step for, for Africa and the African Union. I don't want to say anything about the fact that they left a war in Sudan and went to a war in Ukraine. That's a very important point. <laughs> yeah. So let's look at the rest of his week if we can. Uh, he comes back and then he hosts the prime ministers of Denmark and the Netherlands. It's all about this uh, green hydrogen uh, fund that they're going to start. It's a billion dollar fund. Uh, we have something in the region of 250 million rand, I think, uh, pledged to it so far. Um, again, some deft maneuvering, but people that I've spoken to say that it's not the silver bullet as far as solving our energy crisis is concerned, but the reality is it will have long-term beneficiation uh, for South Africa, particularly in the manufacture, for instance, of uh, of cleaner steel. So, uh, again, uh, he, he's got to get some credit for this, surely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a mixed bag, really, for the president this week, but 
uh, a lot of good is coming out of that. I mean, he hosted uh, uh, the prime ministers of Denmark and Netherlands. I mean, these are members of uh, uh, the European Union, the members of NATO as well. So there will be other conversation as far as that's concerned, obviously from the from the energy side. The cost of, of, of this just energy transition, Jeremy, is going to be huge. The president is in Paris, and yesterday he was talking about an estimated 98 billion US dollars. That's about 1.8 trillion that, that the, the just energy transition is going to cost. Obviously, it's factoring in the cost of the coal belt in Pumalanga, trying to take that down and uh, sort of do exports of coal, the mine mine workers, the whole the towns that depend on the, on on this kind of activity there. So the cost is gonna is gonna be huge. But on the in the boardroom in the boardroom, Jeremy, it looks like the president's doing well. And that's exactly the point that I want to make: is that he is never more comfortable than when he is sitting making a deal, when yeah. he is negotiating. It's what he does best. It's where he's most comfortable. Uh, it is, and whether it it will pay some dividend, hopefully, but uh, it takes him away from the the messiness of South African politics. That is exactly why we elected him. We want South Africans want him to be the president of South Africa. The past four years, he's become the president of the ANC, even saying the ANC cannot split on his watch. That really should not be his job. I mean, the ANC is fighting on its own and it doesn't really need anybody's help. And there's not much you can do. Everybody's talking about unity and unity in the ANC. There's no unity in the ANC. There won't be unity in the ANC. The ANC is openly acknowledging that it's got factions, existing factions that have been there for 20 years. They even have names, radical economic transformation faction and that and that, you know. So they're far away from peace. If anything, Ramaphosa's legacy is going to be what he does for the people of South Africa. Dealing with this with this uh, uh, load-shading crisis, as, as we are talking now, that the, the Minister of Electricity is in China. And again, that's another leg. We, he seems to be really now starting to deal with this crisis of electricity, and to an extent it's got a chance of, of helping us get through this hurdle. We can't have a conversation unless we talk about load shedding. So I was having a conversation today with a senior representative from the Generation Office at ESCOM. Uh, there is no question that uh, there is better maintenance of the power stations. We spoke about this previously, saying that the authority to fix power stations is now devolved to the plant managers themselves. They're also parachuting in a lot of ex-ESCOM tech heavies. That is making a difference. Uh, both uh, Kusili and Madupi are operating better, I was told. But one of the problems is we're still burning too much diesel. That is uh, That comes at a high cost. But the reality is we seem to have contained load shedding for the moment. We're sitting at about stage three. We are talking, recording this podcast in midwinter. So we are certainly on the turn. We're now heading again towards the spring. Uh, but too early to start celebrating just yet. But the reality is there does seem to be some sort of activity, some sort of momentum as far as fixing the problem is concerned. The issue, though, is not necessarily with ESCOM, but it's with the big metros who are still battling with infrastructural difficulties when the power goes off, the power goes on, uh, transformers tripping, that kind of thing. That's a big issue. We still haven't got to grips with that. So don't let's celebrate too early when it comes to that, even though the, the Minister of Electricity is in China <laughs> doing exactly what I'm not sure. Well, Valipadiachi, I mean, only yesterday 
was saying that you can expect stage eight. They are expecting stage eight to come in at uh, the third week of July or the first week of August. And we're saying, look, we're having it good now, but the, the, the bad times are still coming, you know, and, and, and Valley's been around. He's, he's a very senior guy at ESCOM. He's one of the guys who've been shortlisted and being interviewed for the position of group CEO, you know. So he's not some guy who's just talking nonsense. But, I mean, he, he outlines just how extensive the work is. Just the load shedding itself, just to keep taking the switch down. It takes seven, 700 people around the country. And it says... To manage this thing, if you go to higher stages, people have got to literally go to regional, regional substations and take the power down and manage it. It's not electronic. We've been sitting here thinking, oh, no, it's done by the computer. You know, yeah, there's an algorithm or there's one, yeah. there's one person with a, with a, with a mouse on the Yeah, on a, who just does it and take it out in Mount Fred, take it out in that town. Doesn't I work didn't like know. That. It's, it, it's yeah. just done practically. I mean, literally... Someone has to go and do it. So you can imagine when we get to stage 10, stage 12, you know. But we're celebrating the good times for now. A quiet revolution, and this has got nothing to do with electricity, is sweeping through the traditional leadership in KwaZulu-Natal as the new monarch uh, asserts himself. Scrola also writes this week saying that until recently, most South Africans assumed there was only and myself included, there was only one king in the province. Fill me in. Yeah, Jeremy, this is an interesting thing. It has always been there. If you remember, there used to be something called the Ntlapo Commission dates back to 2003. At that time, 11 tribal groups applied to, to, for recognition. Uh, in, 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 in Guazulu Natal, and that, that tells you. If you go back into history, remember, before Shaga, the Zulu, the Zulu nation, or not even a nation at the time, you know, under Shaga's uh, father's king, Senzangakona, there was still a small grouping. And then this new king was born and united, well, not really going to negotiate and unite. There was a lot of armies and impis mm. and all of those fighting to develop his vision of a, a very big Zulu nation. And that's how you end up with, with that. That doesn't mean that there were no other, uh, other groups. So a number of these applications, 11 of them were dismissed. But what is left now is the Hlubi people. Everybody, a lot of people know a lot about the Hlubi people. I'm part of the Hlubi people. So they are in KZN, they are, part of, they are in the Eastern Cape, etc. And they've got their own king. Um, and their matter is still in the high court. This week, there was a cleansing ceremony in the KZN South of the Zaminis, who are claiming to be a kingdom as well. And that's where all of this thing now has just come out. The debate it's, it's, it's just, it's going on now, again. Fill me in, what is the impact of this? And what is, why should we be concerned or should we be welcoming this? Well, they're not, they've, they've clarified that they're not challenging the status of the, of the Zulu king, but they also want their own recognition and obviously they can be recognized. But what does own recognition mean? Well, there's a constitutional recognition. When once that, that happens, we start talking about money, we start talking about some parts of the land. 
and 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 they are saying that the part that used to be Natal is theirs, and and KwaZulu belongs to the Zulu king. So and it's that, a money and, and land issue. That's across Utugela, etc. So when you really get into that, then you start having problems because you start having someone says that all of this land is mine, and anyone who's got a sugar cane here must rent to me and and not pay the money to Ingonyama Trust. That's the reality of the situation right now. People are paying a lot of money into that Ingonyama Trust that we've been talking about. Millions are going into that trust, and all of that money goes to the Zulu royal family. So how's this going to play out then? It's unlikely to happen. This this family is related to uh, Inkosi Mangosutubu Telezi. Uh, they are not. They are. They don't really qualify for for a kingdom. That's why the Ntlapu Commission uh, dismissed their thing. And a lot of people are now saying that the Laminis who qualified for kingship moved to to Swaziland. And if you look at Swaziland, the the, the king of Swaziland, that family, those are Laminis, and 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 that they are in that part of the world. I want to finish off this conversation by referencing uh, the appalling weather in. The Western Cape. I mean, it's not unsurprising. It's winter after all. Yeah. But a lot of rain, a lot of flooding, uh, one cold front followed by another cold front. Uh, if you have the means in the Western Cape uh, to survive the onslaught of what is always a bitter winter, you're fine. But inevitably, it is poorer communities that find themselves at the back of the queue. And this is not a new issue. It's perennial. Uh successive city administrations have been unable to get their heads around the problem. I wonder to myself why this persists and whether there is any kind of solution. Here. You know, for me, Jeremy, what I found disturbing about what happened in the Western Cape was a lost opportunity uh, for the DA. I mean, I'm, and I'm not, talking for, I'm not talking for the DA, but the DA is presenting itself as an alternative government and they are doing very well in the Western Cape. You know, so when you have floods, you would expect a stable government and its municipalities in the DA to be in the forefront of trying to rescue people out of a situation like this. But what did we see this week? We see the gift of the givers. They did most of the hard work, most of the, of, of the heavy lifting, and, and, and I found that quite disappointing. And, you know, I ask this question so often. Do you think it's, it's, it's a political play or do you think it's simply poor organizational logistics? You've got a government there, Jeremy, that, 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 is, that is capable. I've, I've got no doubt about it. I've, I've, I've been looking at the performance of, of that particular government, I think, for the past 10 years. They're capable of doing much, much better. You, you shouldn't be having a situation like in the Eastern Cape when, when there were floods or in KZN where there were floods. Well, those are ANC-run government, and they have collapsed. You know, So I expected, I expected more, and hopefully there will be more. What, what always astounds me is how governments seem to always look at a situation like this as if it's the first time it's ever happened. So Scroller is quoting someone called Charlotte Powell from Cape Town's Disaster Risk Management Center. And uh, this is what she says, the continued rainfall has slowed down progress in terms of dealing with impact like flooded roads, power outages and uprooted trees. But the work continues. Well, glad the work is continuing. This happens every year. Jeremy, every municipality has got a so-called disaster disaster management uh, uh, plan, and it's not funded. So when a disaster comes, there is nothing in the kitty to deal with the disaster. You know, people just, you've lost your entire house and everything, and someone walks in here with a very thin sponge and and, and a thin blanket, and that's supposed to be uh, a disaster response to your situation. 
that's so unfortunate. But also, Jeremy, we've noticed when you've got even disaster funds that have been made available, a billion rand in KZN, and, and part of the budget just disappears. Only 20% of the budget has been used so far in the story that we're reporting about, which we have updated today about the statues. 1.3 million rand was moved from the Tongat uh, water, water Works to fund these statues, and 6.5 million moved from firefighting to buying vehicles in Deben, which are needed, to fund these, these Chinese statues. And today, yesterday, they announced that they're going to be building a new statue of the founder of the Shembe Church. That's going to cost millions again. While the new statues that have arrived from China of Nelson Mandela or Wartambo have not even been unwrapped. I'm dying to see what they look like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I've really lost confidence. The fact that it has taken three weeks yeah. just to show them off, I'm worried. <laughs> So one of the principles that we subscribe to here on the ScrollerCast is we get the work done first, and then we are able to celebrate. So am I allowed to say it's your birthday today? Oh, yeah, it's I my birthday. It's your birthday today. <laughs> so the man has come in on his birthday to come and talk about uh, the state of South Africa, the state of the world. So, uh, Zokili, very happy birthday to you. Hope it's a good one. Thank and you so much. I hope a little later on today you'll end up drinking a little bit more than just a cup of coffee. Uh, we've been very well behaved. <laughs> so that's this week's ScrollerCast. As always, thank you very much for listening. I hope we've made a little bit of sense uh, about what is happening. Um, I hope you either disagree or agree with us, but we're trying our best to add something to the broader conversation. Um, Toby Shapshak is our executive producer. Hans Baumgarten is our technical director. And if you like the conversation, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And... Uh, Daily, there is more content on scroller.africa. From both of us, goodbye.